This is Medicaid Leadership Exchange, a podcast where Medicaid directors and other guests get frank about what it's like to steward the nation's largest health insurance program. 80 million or one in four individuals in the U.S. receive health care through Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program. Medicaid agencies administer a complex web of programs. Listen in as we explore some of the challenges leaders in Medicaid navigate and their top priorities to deliver services and build health. Hello, and welcome to the Medicaid Leadership Exchange. I'm your host, Gretchen Hammer. Today, we are talking about one of the most complex and yet critical parts of the Medicaid program, long-term services and supports and home and community-based services. These services provide vital supports to people to live safely in their homes, to live and thrive and really maximize their contributions to uh, their communities. They're also very complex to administer and to deliver because they are so person-centered. At the same time, state Medicaid leaders have to create structures that these programs operate under. And now in the wake of the COVID pandemic, the federal government has made some historic investments in these kinds of services, recognizing that people really do better when they have the supports that they need to live safely in their communities. So today we've joined, we're being joined by two tremendous Medicaid leaders to talk about what they're doing in their states to take advantage of the new federal investments in home and community-based services but also to more generally think about the role that home and community-based services have played in really fulfilling the obligation of their Medicaid program and the leadership that they've required in order to be successful in this work. So I'm going to um, talk first about letting them both introduce themselves. Uh, we have Lee Grossman from Wyoming and Kevin Bagley from Nebraska. They'll both have a chance to introduce themselves and then we'll jump right into the conversation. Lee, let me start with you. Hello, thanks, and it's great to be here. My name is Lee Grossman, and I serve as the Home and Community-Based Services Section Administrator with Wyoming Medicaid. Um, I've been in this role for about five years now, and I'm very passionate about the, the topic we're here to discuss today. Thanks, Gretchen. Um, Kevin Bagley, I am the Director for the Division of Medicaid and Long-Term Care in the state of Nebraska. I've been here in Nebraska for almost a year and a half, Prior to that, I worked with the state of Utah for about nine years, um, working in a number of different roles, but um, spent the last several years working in long-term services and supports um, and, and uh, had the chance to meet Lee in that role. And now I'm a neighbor of his on the other side of Wyoming. So excited to be here. Thank you. Terrific. And before we jump in, I also want to remind our listeners that, as usual, we are joined by Mark Larson from the Center for Healthcare Strategies, and he will be listening to our conversation and at the end providing a summary of um, the leadership lessons that he's hearing Lee and Kevin uh, really work through and, and fulfill while they're doing this work. So as I mentioned in the opening, home and community-based services are a critical part of the Medicaid program. They serve to be particularly critical during the COVID pandemic and have subsequently had some major federal investments. How are you um, thinking about this historic opportunity? Does it feel as heavy as it sounds when we say this is a historic investment? Sort of where, where does this um, time 
fit in your history of long-term services and supports. Kevin, since you've worked in this space for a while, maybe you can provide that historic context or sort of the gravity of what this time means. Sure. Uh, you know, I think part of what makes this historic is really the notion that there's never really been this much attention paid to home and community-based services kind of writ large for the federal government, for others, probably not since its inception in the 1980s, right? And, and so the level of attention being paid to all of the caregivers that, that are the underlying support for these programs uh, is, is really coming to play. And, and part of that, I think, has come out of the pandemic, which is probably a positive thing to come out of it. Terrific. Lee, how about you? Yeah, you know, I, I think the timing, just like meant what uh, Kevin mentioned in terms of this being, you know, hopefully at the, the tail end of, of this uh, pandemic, really heightens that importance. I think we all know certainly the, the issues with direct support professional staff, et cetera, and, you know, it's hard to see us still being in this, in this place. Again, sort of the, the positive to come from all this hopefully is exactly this, uh, this very unique opportunity that we all have. And, you know, it's, it's always helpful to walk around and, you know, meet with, with your leadership team and start talking about once in a career opportunities, right? That really just ratchets everything up a, a bit more, but it's true. Um, and, and you never know when this type of a type of an opportunity such as you know, time on the John Oliver show and things like that are going to come up in this space again. So it's, it's a, it's a real um, opportunity that I think all of us who are leading in this space feel very acutely and want to get it right. So I want to step on another part of the historic nature of our time and that you both mentioned in your opening comments, the workforce. So sometimes they're called direct service professionals, direct care workers. You know, the pandemic also created pretty significant disruptions in our employment sectors, right? The service sector has not necessarily rebounded. And while some health parts of the healthcare sector have rebounded, the direct professionals, the CNAs, the caregivers, the personal care attendants, that part of the economy is still not back. And I know that state agencies are struggling with how do we appropriately get, if we have a vision for these services as being so critical to people's lives, but we don't necessarily have the workforce. That is hard for people to sort of understand the complexities of that dynamic, right? So when you all are thinking about the leadership that's needed to explain the relationship between Medicaid programming and you know, larger economic trends, including workforce trends, you know, what are you finding is the easiest way to help people understand some of these major areas that you're wanting to focus on workforce, quality of care, you know, individual choice, those kinds of things that are foundational to HCBS, but were also kind of disrupted in the pandemic. I don't know, Kevin or Lee, you may, neither one of you can start. So I'll, uh, I'll start, but I'll let Lee add, uh, add whatever he wants, certainly. Um, you know, I think for me, it's being able to tell a story right? It's being able to take some of the, the struggles, the experiences that these members have had, being able to talk about that and, and kind of put it into context. One of the, I think, common misconceptions that a lot of people have around HCBS is they don't realize the amount of natural support that is in place. Um, we, we talk about the services that Medicaid pays for, 
but you know, family members and friends and neighbors and faith-based organizations and community-based organizations are providing a ton of natural supports that often go unpaid. Um, and the pandemic tested those in addition to disrupting the paid ones. Uh, and, and so that for me, it, it's being able to tell that story and help people see what's really going on in those, in the lives of the, the people we serve. Terrific. Yeah, and just to add on to that, you know, I think when we, when we try to sort through some of the lessons and let's say practices uh, that we want to keep from the last couple of years, in addition to, you know, just that, uh, the natural supports discussion, which I think is very important. It's thinking long-term, you know, let's, let's just assume that the workforce crisis isn't just going to rebound immediately, right? I don't, I don't think that's probably in many of our thinking uh, right now. So long-term, how can we continue to meet the support needs and demands of HCBS recipients? Technology is obviously, you know, a glaring example of something that we've all become much more accustomed to in our daily lives, how we bridge, you know, long distances, you know, and, and certainly in my state, and I, uh, you know, just from my travels through Nebraska, you know, there's some parts that look a lot like Wyoming, that's for sure, in terms of, you know, just overcoming large distances, and how using things like telehealth, we can do that, which certainly at least in Wyoming was very few and far between uh, in terms of utilization in this space. And it's those types of examples that, um, while certainly addressing you know, the acute needs of this workforce, but again, using also some uh, strategic thinking and funding through ARPA, how we can not only you know, within our own organizations try to push that long-term perspective and try to think five years down the road, but in our conversations externally, be it with stakeholders and other policymakers, you know, how we talk about, of course, the need of the day, you know, what's in the budget right now, uh, but also talking about how we can invest um, to make strategic improvements in terms of access and service quality um, down the road. And I think that's where, you know, in, in terms of Medicaid agencies, where we are uniquely positioned to try to, you know, influence the conversations in, the, in that particular manner. I want to add to that, Lee, you know, one of the things I think we saw coming out of all of the, the pandemic, and this was you know, broader than HCBS, but it was recognizing how interconnected all of these uh, you know, human services type programs and even just society in general really is, you know, as, as we saw workers in childcare facilities, childcare facilities were closing, those workers were now um, out of work and the parents of the children that would have gone now needed additional support because they had to figure out how to be able to continue to go to work. And um, so for our, as we think about how we really set ourselves up for success in the future, I, I think that's exactly right. We need to not just say, well, how do we solve today's problem? But how do we solve today's problem in a way that sets us up to mitigate risk of these kind of problems in the future? How do we set ourselves up in a way that is gonna provide a, a sure foundation that's less fragile than the one we have today? Well, I wanna ask about that. You both have said that and it's such a beautiful vision, but we also know state budgets are set on an annual basis, right? So like pop the, the vision bubble for just a minute. And these 
investments, many of the investments from the federal government are temporary. It's a temporary increase. That is a tremendous leadership challenge to have a vision for the future, know that it's going to take multiple years of investments, as you said, Kevin, I think, to really shore up the system, to not just sort of play whack-a-mole on the problem of the day, but to see a system and to, and to make it structurally sound. But you have the, the challenge of an annual budget, uh, temporary you know, ability to temporarily raise wages, but maybe not the ability to maintain those, those uh, increases. How are you navigating that sort of uh, tension of having to deal with immediate budget constraints that are just part of the process and making these long-term investments? What, what tricks have you found to do that? Sure, I'll, I'll take an initial uh, swipe at that. Yeah, softball question there, Gretchen. Appreciate that, that one. I mean, that's, I think that's a, just speaking for myself, that's a core challenge of how we consider the opportunity available through ARPA for HCBS. And, you know, not just saying, okay, well, we're going to put this money in some kind of a direct pass through, you know, to providers, be it rates, bonuses, um, as needed as those may be in terms of staff retention. That, again, doesn't get to the long-term vision that we were talking about, right? That's, um, and, and I think there, therein lies the challenge of, you know, for example, how you can meet that acute need, which just for example, in Wyoming's experience, we're doing with using about half of those ARPA dollars for rate enhancements. Um, but then especially engaging with stakeholders, I think is an important piece of this for when, and this is something we did before we got, for example, the state Medicaid director guidance in terms of trying to build some of those partnerships of, you know, you as a consumer or other stakeholder, be a family member, et cetera, what do you need? And we tried to phrase it from, you know, a time-limited purpose that is going to have a long-term benefit. Mm -hmm. um, so just in terms of, from the budgeting perspective, trying to make it one very clear in all of our communications that, you know, this isn't in perpetuity and that we need to think strategically. Um, and just the last point I would offer up on this you know, especially I feel like earlier on uh, when we were all trying to learn more about uh, this enhanced federal funding, you know, sustainability was a big piece of that discussion, right? In terms of how can this be sustainable? And I think that is a, that is a critical focus, but, you know, in terms of also, you know, being very realistic, we have to acknowledge what that's going to look like. So for example, is that enhancing a, some service? Is that temporary with a long-term gain in terms of, let's say, someone's independence, et cetera? Or are we looking at something that has more of an upfront cost to, say, stand up a service or more robustly develop a provider network that's going to benefit us in the long term? Um, but you're, you, know, you hit the nail on the head in terms of just those, those challenges of navigating the appropriation side versus the operational side, and, and again, how we can maximize this opportunity. I think it's navigating those expectations as well, right? And you you hit that on the head, Lee. One of the things we heard from all of our stakeholders right off the bat was we need immediate relief. Whether it's workforce issues, being able to put bonuses, retention incentives, pay increases, all of those things we heard, we need that right away. Uh, and it's hard to kind of go back and say, right, 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 but let's think about the future because so many of them are saying, I may not have a future if we don't fix this. And so, you know, being able to balance that discussion, I think Lee, you know, you hit it just right. 
and being able to try and think about what are those investments that we can make now um, that, that are one-time investments, but that really do something to fundamentally improve the structure or the processes in our system. And, and those are not always as exciting for stakeholders to say, you know, we want to invest in improving our care planning system that you communicate with. That doesn't sound fun and the money doesn't go to them. And so it feels like this is not helpful, um, but it's being able to tell that story of, but, but what we want to do is improve your experience. And here's how we think that investment in, it does that. Uh, it's hard to do though. And, and it requires really, you know, meaningful conversations and trust with those stakeholders. Terrific. Another area that the pandemic highlighted for us and that stakeholders have a lot of, um, of perspectives on is, is the issue of, of racial and ethnic disparities or community-based disparities, right? You all are both from large rural communities where the data is very clear, rural Americans are not as healthy and don't have access to the services and supports they need. Tribal nations out here in the West as well. And then also um, immigrant communities, right? There are pockets of immigrant communities all over uh, the United States that also have faced particular challenges um, in navigating the pandemic and in navigating home and community-based services. So how, if at all, have the needs of maybe folks who don't speak English as their first language or who may have challenges navigating the sort of typical government systems how have you thought about that or thought about addressing that in your work on home and community-based services? Kevin, I'll start with you. I know, I think you just went out on a statewide tour, so I'll start with you. Yeah, we did. Um, wasn't, it wasn't related to HCBS, but we actually ended up talking a lot about HCBS. Part of it is, is recognizing that the traditional ways that we have measured um, some of our, I'll, I'll call them performance measures in Medicaid access is, is the best example I can think of. The traditional ways we've measured that really might not capture the underlying issues. Um, we, we heard from members in some of our more urban areas that they had significant access issues. Well, our data shows there's plenty of physicians nearby, um, but that's not the only way to measure access. Um, and we found out that's not the most meaningful way. Uh, it wasn't surprising to us, but we were hearing that. On the other side, we knew um, access was an issue in some of our rural areas and for some of our tribal members, uh, because of just the nature of where they are, they have to travel further to get to a provider. Um, but it, it's, it's really trying to understand how they interact with our system and and what that interaction looks like, what their expectations are, uh, being able to really hear their story and understand their experience, uh, that, that makes all the difference because they'll start to tell you things um, about the data that you have that are really contextual. Um, you start to understand what those disparities really look like. And um, even if we can measure them um, it gives that context of what is the real underlying issue. What we're measuring is a symptom. It's not the underlying problem. Great. Thank yeah. you. Lee, any thoughts? Yeah, and just to build on, you know, especially that last comment, Kevin, I'm kind of struck by the, the experience of, you know, that, that uh, what those stakeholder conversations can look like. And, 
you know, this being a good example of being more in, interested in the data of one, right? Like the, the qualitative rather than the quantitative, maybe sort of the, the communications or the operating area there. So just the one piece that I would add, you know, in terms of access, just thinking of something as logistical as our materials, right? In terms of how those are accessible for folks. Um, and that's something that that came out of our conversations of uh, just some early stakeholder engagement. If we can have those um, accessible uh, for you know non-English uh, uh, materials, as well as even just things like Braille, for example. And of course, as a agency who serves people with disabilities um, in particular, that seems like you know very low-hanging fruit for us for us to accomplish. So just even thinking of you know what our um, program and agency's relevance are to those that we serve or may not be serving uh, right now, I think was a was a, a key and very actionable initial takeaways. Well, certainly over the course of our conversation, you all have communicated how committed you are to making sure these services meet the needs of the people in your state. I do want to give you one last chance, though. Is there anything else that you're working on or managing as you think about implementing or transforming your long-term care systems or your home and community-based services? that we didn't have a chance to talk about that would be interesting to our listeners. And then we'll turn it over to Mark to do some final reflections, but any last thoughts of things you're working on that you wanna make sure listeners have a chance to know about? A couple of things. One is, is more of an initiative. And then I wanna, I wanna bring it back to kind of the theme of leadership, especially um, you know, within, our, within our own teams and agencies. So for one, you know, kind of trying to also tie the theme of stakeholder engagement in, um, we tried to create opportunities early on for where we more intentionally engage with, for example, providers, you know, more uh, kind of separate engagement opportunities for stakeholders and, and service recipients. And what came out of that was a requirement that, um, for example, a rate increase we implemented last month in, in excuse me, in February of 2022, um, that 100% of that had to go to direct support professional compensation, um, just in terms of hopefully trying to meet some needs of both stakeholder groups. Um, so that's one thing that's been very actionable that I'm certainly proud of that I think relates to a lot of things we're talking about. Um, but just want to also close on the theme of, you know, just thinking of, of everything that's happened in the last couple of years between, you know, when we go back to the start of the pandemic, upending how we work, um, the nature of our day-to-day -day work, that is all the way to certainly in my state's experience, very significant budget reductions, you know, IT system implementations. We have a new MMIS that we, that we uh, stood up in this time. And then all the way to, to where we are today, which, you know, whiplash from budget reductions is, hey, 10% more federal funds, you know, uh, uh, Yahtzee, right? That's kind of the, the mode that we've, we've been in. And in terms of how we can support staff with the same number of staff throughout everything, you know, that we're discussing here, as I'm sure is the case in most state agencies. And so how we can, and I as a leader in particular, can be supportive of our team um, in terms of what that, what that vision is, what we're here to accomplish, I think has been um, something that I'm proud of, of really our team in terms of how we've been able to focus on what the outcome is here. So what's going to be the uh, the situation in the state of Wyoming HCBS here in 2024, and not just checking things off a list, right? That, you know, we did these activities, but that they're meaningful, not only for us as state agency, Medicaid leaders, but to those that we're here to serve as well. Great. Thank you so much. Kevin? I think uh, for me and, and my team over the last little while, the, the theme has been um, 
never let a crisis go to waste. Um, we've learned a lot through the pandemic that we can be a lot more flexible um, and, and move faster than we ever thought we could. Um, some of that is because of uh, the speed that our federal partners have helped us move at. But some of that is just rethinking our processes and, and our requirements. And so, you know, as we've gone through these exercises, it's been okay, we've got this crisis. We're all in triage mode to try and solve the immediate problem. But let's all take a step back and spend a little bit of time to say, what can we do now in this crisis as we're making these changes to set ourselves up for success in the future? Um, and, and for that, from a leadership perspective, I think you have to have that vision of where you want to go. Um, and if you've, if you've put that together with feedback from stakeholders, you're going to get better buy-in um, and you're going to have people who will say, no, we support you in this effort, even though it takes a little bit longer or even though um, it may not be exactly what we wanted, we see where you're headed and we trust that you're headed in the direction that helps us. So, um, you know, don't let a crisis go to waste, I guess it would be what I would leave it with. Terrific, thank you. Mark, I'm gonna turn it over to you to uh, reflect back to us and our listeners, sort of what you heard. Uh, well, Gretchen, I once again am appreciating the privilege that you and I have in being able to sit around the virtual table with folks like Lee and Kevin and to, to glean some pieces from their knowledge and their work as we over the course of time have thought about what it takes to be effective leading in the public sector. Kevin Lee, you, you reinforced a bunch of themes today that uh, came to my mind. And the first was this notion that, you know, we think about leaders as having strategic vision. We often think about that as meaning they have a clear sense of how to get from where you are to where you want to get to. But uh, you both in different ways have talked about how oftentimes leadership means sort of going with the flow and dealing with what's emergent. And Kevin, your point about never letting a crisis go to waste um, really reinforces what you both have demonstrated in terms of the agility of uh, how, do you, how do you take an unpredictable situation and connect it to that sense of what's important and where you want to get to long-term and, and make the most of it. And that really struck me several times in your conversation today. Uh, and then you both in different ways reinforced, you know, we often talk about the importance of technical knowledge, knowing the business well, but you, you've connected that in, in interesting ways today to also understanding the individuals that you serve and the communities in which they live and the ability to connect those two things. How do you use the business to be able to achieve uh, better outcomes for the individuals that we serve. I mean, that's, it's a really nice reflection on how the skills of leading in the public sector aren't, you know, one thing or the other. It's often the combination of the two that really is interesting uh, and impactful over the course of time. And I'll, I'll just pick up on the point I think that the two of you also made that in all of that, there's the importance of resiliency. How do you keep at it? And do that in a way without losing sight of Lee, you talked about not losing sight of what matters. Uh, Kevin, you talked about the vision and, and where you want to go. That ability to stay in the game. And we know that Medicaid leaders and you know, individuals who are working in Medicaid and public health and all across the public sector these days have just been really amazing examples of that resiliency 
uh, and not losing sight of how to take advantage of a really, you know, a really hard time over the past two years of the, the pandemic to not lose sight of what we can accomplish for the long term. I, I really appreciate the way that you both have weaved that into your comments today. Great, thank you so much, Mark. Uh, and I wanna also express how, how much gratitude I have to get to um, participate in these conversations and to engage with you all. Thank you so much, Mark, Lee, Kevin. Um, today's conversation really is about midway through some of the investments that have come. Um, and it, you know, we are still each state moving, thankfully, hopefully out of the pandemic. Uh, and so it really is an opportunity to, to begin to rebuild these systems and to try and set them up for success in the long term. So you can keep track of what your state is up to by following your state Medicaid agency if you're not already. As I think both Lee and Kevin mentioned, this part of Medicaid is highly stakeholder engaged and informed because these services are so critical to people's livelihoods. And so it's really important that we stay connected to stakeholders. So thank you all again for your time and you can catch us the next time on the Medicaid Leadership Exchange. This podcast is a collaboration between the Center for Healthcare Strategies and the National Association of Medicaid Directors. Season three is made possible by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation.